On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. And now we have what we call the prayer for illumination for my mind and for yours. Let's do that. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you that we have, that we have heard your word already. Psalm 65 has been a great encouragement to us. We pray that uh, Mark 4 would be, that we could see clearly what you have for us this morning. The Holy Spirit, help me to say the words that need to be said and help us all to hear them that we could see Jesus and see Him clearly and worship Him. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I was talking to a friend of mine named David, and he told me this story. About 30 years ago, David was hiking around Rainbow Lake. Does anybody know where that is? Lots of people. Um, There's a moderately easy trail that gets you down to the lake, but there are also some steeper descents if you want the challenge. Well, David hiked down one of these steep embankments just to explore, see what else he might have not had seen before. Um, And after a while, he began to climb back up to go home, and that's when it happened. It was a hot day, and as he slowly made his way up the steep hillside, he began to grow tired and hot, understandably. Now, just above him was an overhanging rock, And it looked like it would probably provide some shade from the afternoon sun, so he started making his way towards it. He reached it, and he stood under its shade, and then he leaned his arm sort of on the ledge above him like this, you know, just, you know, leaned like this. And he was peering in front. And as he caught his breath and as he cooled off, he found himself staring directly into the mouth of a cave. He couldn't see anything inside, The darkness was too thick. But slowly, after a minute or two, his eyes began to adjust to the light. And as he stared intently into the thick darkness, he could just begin to discern something. About ten feet in front of him, he started to discern two pointed ears and a snout and some eyes staring back at him. David was seeing something that he did not see at first. He was in the presence of something that he did not expect. He was in the presence of something that was there all along, but he had only just begun to notice it. Now in that instance, 
David's adjusting eyes, they had a short conference with his wits, and they conveyed this message to his reflexes. Bear! Well, David scaled the rest of that rock wall about 25 feet straight up in seconds and never looked back. This morning, as we look at this passage in Mark 4, our, air, our eyes are staring into the darkness. We're staring into the darkness. It's the darkness of our sin. It's the darkness of our hard hearts. And for some of us, sadly, it's the darkness of our familiarity with this passage of Scripture. And they all threaten to prevent us from seeing something or someone that we do not expect. But if we fix our eyes for just a few minutes and we stare intently at His Word and ask the Spirit to help us and to help me, we may begin to see the outline of Jesus. We may begin to see the outline, the image of the person that's standing right before us. So this morning we're looking at a narrative. It's a story, okay? It's, it's a true story. It really happened to people, real people. Do you understand that? This happened to real people like us. And as we work back through this familiar passage, we're going to be tempted to take the easy trails to the left and the right. But for a few minutes, we really need to look intently in order to see. Just like my friend David, we need to stare for a few minutes into the thick darkness so that the eyes of faith can adjust to the light. So let's get inside this story, okay? This is a, this is a group project. Um, I want you to hear the wind, okay? You have to use your imagination, a sanctified imagination this morning, okay? I want you to hear the wind. I want you to feel the waves crashing into the auditorium. And if the sermon goes too long, I want somebody to cry out, don't you care that we're perishing? Honestly, if we do this right, some of you may need some Dramamine before the sermon's over, okay? So Jesus and his disciples, they're tired. It's been a very long day. A large crowd has gathered around Jesus. He spent the day teaching the people about the kingdom of heaven and parables. The crowd was so large, Jesus had to get into a boat, and he rode out a bit from shore for a couple of reasons at least. One, maybe for his own protection, and two, so that everyone could see him and hear him. At some point in the day, he apparently withdrew from the crowd, and he went with his disciples, and he explained the meaning of the parables. It was at the end of this day when our story picks up. Jesus tells his disciples he wants to cross over to the other side of the sea. Why? I don't know. But he does. So these disciples, led no doubt by the experienced fishermen, Peter, James, and John, they take Jesus on the boat and they begin to make their way across the Sea of Galilee. Now the Sea of Galilee sits down inside a bowl. It's surrounded by hills all the way around. In fact, this is amazing. It's almost 700 feet below sea level. Now, I'm not a meteorologist, but apparently this makes for an unpredictable and dangerous weather pattern. With almost no warning, the winds can descend on the water and produce almost instant furious storms. This is just what happened on this day. 
The disciples are making their way to the opposite shore, and one of these storms is whipped up out of nowhere. Now remember, these are experienced fishermen. They've been in storms before. This one's bad. In Matthew's gospel, the word he uses to describe this storm can be translated as a sea quake or a great shaking. The wind is blowing fiercely. Can you see it? Close your eyes. Can you see it? The wind is blowing fiercely. The waves have gotten so high, they're coming over the sides of the boat. The boat is filling with water. Your socks are wet. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a boat on rough waters, but let me tell you something. It is quite the unsettling experience. With every wave, you wonder, is this it? Is this the one that's going to sink us? And that is just what the disciples are feeling and fearing. Now, before we go on, let's linger here for a minute. Can you hear the winds? Can you see this sail shaking violently? Can you feel this boat rocking as if the ground is falling out from under you over and over again? Can you hear the men screaming at God and at one another? Can you see Jesus? Wait a minute. Where is Jesus? Oh, he's asleep. (laughs) Jesus is asleep on the cushion. The boat is rocking, the wind is howling, the waves are crashing into and onto the disciples and Jesus himself, and he is asleep on the cushion at the end of the boat. How? How? The only way I I can make sense of this is to compare it to my wife's driving. Now, hold on. Everybody's nervous. Oh, he's going to say something ugly about his wife. No, I'm not. I'm not comparing Sarah's driving to a great tempest. Okay, You see, I have been self-diagnosed with what I call vehicular narcolepsy. Right now, parents all over the room are wondering, did my kid ride to camp with him Friday night? (laughs) Some of them did. They all made it alive, by the way. Um, Generally, I can drive for about an hour or so. There seems to be this spell of slumber that hits at Nashville, Atlanta, and Birmingham. I don't know what it is. Uh, But I cannot drive long distances without falling asleep. In fact, when we're going almost anywhere together, Sarah drives. And I sleep. Soundly. Now, I know the road can be dangerous. I know there are crazy drivers out there. There's road construction and fallen trees and potholes and risk of hydroplaning. But I sleep. Soundly. And you know why I can do this? My wife, Sarah, is a phenomenal driver. I mean, they should get her a NASCAR suit. She, she, I mean, she can zip in and out and dodge falling objects it, like just like nothing. She's not perfect, but she's a great driver. And when she drives, I can sleep. In a sense, listen, I willingly submit my life into the hands of my wife. I think this is how Jesus sleeps in the boat. In the fullness of his humanity, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is tired. He's exhausted. And that has something to do with why we find him sleeping here 
But I think the greater reason that he can sleep through this is that Jesus has a relentless inner peace that his Father is in control. It's the only explanation. So the disciples have to actually wake him up. Uh, one commentator wrote it this way, what nature in all its fury was unable to do, the cries of his friends did. Is that, is that beautiful? The only thing that could wake Jesus from this satisfying sleep under the care of his father was his care for his disciples. That is beautiful. But he does awake, and the disciples ask him this question frantically. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It's not at all clear what the disciples expected him to do or that they even thought he could do anything. It seems they're just mad that he seems to have, be so indifferent to his own safety and theirs. And he makes no attempt to help. I think that's why they're mad. That's why they ask the question. In, the, in this moment, these men are beginning to doubt what little they had already begun to believe about Jesus. At this point, Jesus continues the waking up process. I mean, maybe he rubs his eyes like this, or he's, you know, he stretches his arms. Jesus is a man, by the way, right? Fully human. So he's tight. That cushion's probably not all that comfortable. Cracks his neck a little bit. But he gets up, and he does something that nobody expects. He doesn't start helping bail the water out of the boat. He doesn't have some secret boating technique that these experienced fishermen had never learned. He, he doesn't even pray to the Father for help. He stands up and he talks to the weather. Authoritatively. Verse 39, And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Now that's strange. But do you know what's more strange? They obeyed him. And instantly, the wind stopped blowing. And that's amazing. I mean, that, that is a miracle. Jesus has just told a violent wind to stop blowing, and it stopped blowing. But that is not all. And I never noticed this until recently. Did you know that he gives, he gives two commands? One to the wind, he rebukes the wind, and then he says to the sea, the, the raging waves, he says, peace, be still. Listen, don't let your familiarity with this passage rob you of adjusting to the light here. We have got to stare into the darkness of this moment for just a minute. If Jesus had just stopped the wind, the waves would have continued to roll for hours, right? I mean, there's momentum there. There's, there's a progression. The disciples may have been out of danger, but the ride to the other side would have been long and sickening. Jesus looks at that raging sea and he says, be still. Instantly, these waves cease. The surface of the water flattens. 
I don't know if you have ever been on Lake Chickamauga at 7 p.m. on a summer Friday night, but it can get rough out there, even without bad weather. The combination of maybe an evening breeze and the countless bass boats and ski boats heading for the nearest shrimp platter and adult beverage, it can get the lake pretty worked up. But the next morning, if the weather's been just right, if the conditions are right for the water and the water is undisturbed for a good 10 to 12 hours, the surface of that lake is like glass. Not, not a ripple. If you go skiing on a morning like that, it's almost an otherworldly experience. Has anybody, has anybody ever done that? Isn't nobody in the room? Have you skied at 6 a.m. on glass? It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. That's what the water looked like an instant after Jesus gave his command. Perfect, serene peace. Stare into that for a minute. You see, it's at this point that we can take the easy way out if we want. We can get off right now. This ride can end right now. There are any number of applications that we could draw from the account if we stop right here. We might, as many preachers have done, draw the conclusion that Jesus calmed the storm for the disciples and He can calm the storms in our lives. And you know what? That's true. That's true. What did we sing for our offertory? The peace of God. Philippians 4.6 tells us we should not worry, but instead pray, and the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus really can and does bring peace in the midst of life's storms, and it's unexplainable. But that's not what Mark wants us to see here. We could, as I mentioned earlier, draw out of this account Jesus' trust in His heavenly Father. Maybe that was the key to the peace of the storm. And you know what? That's true. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your path. Psalm 4.8 says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We really can trust God and lean on Him in such a way that we put our lives and our paths in His care. Just like I put my life in my wife's driving. We can really do that. But that's not what Mark wants us to see. Okay, well then, let's see. Um, Jesus is in the storm with the disciples. Okay, that's important. It's not that He sent them across the sea. It's that He's there with them. Maybe that's the point. Um. And even if Jesus doesn't calm the storm the way I want Him to, there's just comfort in knowing that He's there. And, and you know what? That, that's true too. That, that's true. Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you may go. Or what about Matthew 18.20? For where there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. Promises of God, all true. Not what Mark wants us to see this morning. 
okay, well, it's our weak faith. That's definitely in the passage. That is in the passage. Jesus asked his disciples, have you still not faith? Listen, we should have more faith. No doubt. I mean, after all, after all Christ has done, all these amazing things that he's done for us in his flesh 2,000 years ago and by his spirit every day of our lives, he's provided in such a way that everybody in this room has got clothes on their bodies, shelter. I think most of us will eat today. We find ourselves in church this morning in safety hearing the word of God. We should have more faith. He's answered prayers. He's always been with us. He's laid down for us in His Word and in the annals of church history countless of thousands of testimonies of people who have put their trust in Jesus Christ and not been disappointed. Hebrews 12.1 Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, the sin which clings so closely, and let us run the race with endurance that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Yes, after all this, we should have more faith. I don't think that's it. Because there's still verse 41. Verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You see, the problem with preaching all those other truths from this passage, and they are truths, is that we take an easier path to the things we want from God. Peace in the midst of the storm. Reassurance that God is always with us. A call to a deeper faith. But unless we deal with verse 41, our hold on those other benefits of our faith, they will be weak. Hope and peace are coming. I hope even in the next 10 minutes. But listen, hope and peace will slip through our hands unless we deal with verse 41. And they were filled with great fear. You see, this situation did not bring the disciples peace. Not yet. The storm was frightening. Listen, what Jesus did terrified them. Even though they had seen Jesus perform miracles before, they had seen Him heal, they were not ready for this. They did not have a category for the power and authority they had just seen exercise over creation. Utter natural chaos to complete serenity in an instant. How? Jesus spoke. The storm obeyed. Now, Just like my friend David, as his eyes began to focus, the disciples have realized they're in the presence of someone they didn't expect. For the first time, perhaps, they're just beginning to see the outline of who this Jesus is. They've been with Him. They've seen miracles. They've heard the words that He's spoken. They've seen the crowds flock to Him. This was different. In this act, Jesus has just spoken with authority 
over the creation itself. Barometric pressures neutralized. The laws of physics and motion and fluid dynamics abandoned their normal operations at the word of Jesus Christ. At Jesus' command, every molecule in the sea and the air instantly obeyed, dropped, and flattened out to a perfect stillness. The change was so abrupt, it terrified the disciples. They're beginning to see. Are we beginning to see? Are you beginning to see who Jesus is? Have we been staring at Jesus long enough for the eyes of faith to adjust? Or have we spent the years of our lives taking easy roads to the left and the right of the fullness of Jesus Christ? With this act of power and authority of Jesus as a backdrop, I want us to hear one of our scripture readings again, just a portion of it. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created. By Him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things and in Him, in Jesus Christ, all things hold together. By Him, all things were created. How was the cosmos created? Who remembers? How, how, are the, how was the cosmos created? God speaks. <laughs> Genesis 1, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What language? Now listen. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And throughout Genesis 1, we see this pattern. God speaks, nature responds. Jesus speaks, nature responds. God was in the boat. And that's what freaked the disciples out. In his presence, they were overcome with fear. They thought Jesus was a great teacher, a miracle worker, maybe even the Messiah. They were not ready to see that he was God. They were not ready to believe Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Listen. This sermon this morning, I hope it's a beginning. But if it is a beginning, it's only that. If we walk out of those doors at 12.05 and go back to business as usual, we're going to miss Jesus Christ. I can't do it for you, you can't do it for me, but we can help one another. I can't tell you how long it'll take. I can't help tell you how many sleepless nights there are going to be, how many physical and emotional storms and bouts of loneliness there will be before he finally stands up and says, peace, be still. But I can tell you this, it will not be until we have gazed long and sure at Jesus Christ and his word. The only way that we can have the peace and the comfort that we long for is to see Jesus for who he really is, God with us.
Now, our Old Testament lesson this morning was from Jonah chapter 1. And I don't know if you noticed this. There are some striking similarities. Striking similarities between this passage and Jonah chapter 1. Now, I'm going to confess to you, I haven't stared into the darkness long enough. So you're not going to get everything you need about Jonah chapter 1 and Mark chapter 4 from the next four minutes. But let me tell you this, it's interesting. You'll remember Jonah had been given a commandment, go and preach to Nineveh. Commandment of God to his prophet, go and preach. Jonah didn't want to do that. So he hopped on the ship and he sailed away from Nineveh. And the Bible says, away from the presence of the Lord. And while on board ship, Jonah and his temporary companions, they met a violent windstorm. Sound familiar? Listen, you don't have to turn there, but just listen to me read. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish and from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Away, away, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to be break up, broken up. Sound familiar? Then the mariners were afraid, sound familiar, and each one cried to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Sound familiar? So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Sound familiar? Don't you care that we're perishing? Perhaps the God you call out to will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So they cast lots to see whose fault the storm was, and guess what? The lot fell to Jonah. Surprise, surprise. So they say, "Um, Jonah, what's the deal, buddy? Uh, What have you done here? Verse 9. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them so. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea might quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me in it. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men, they they were noble men. They said, no, no, we can't throw an innocent man overboard. And they tried, they tried to row. The Lord whipped up more of a storm. Therefore, 
they called out to the Lord. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Sound familiar? Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Sound familiar? God calmed the sea and it terrified them. Now, what did we expect to see in that story? Joyous cheering! Yes! That was perfect. Uh, Merrymaking. Kegs being tapped. I don't know. We expect to see joy. The storm is over. No, they're exceedingly afraid. Just like the disciples. But there's also a stark difference between these two accounts, isn't there? In Mark, Jesus calms the storm with mere words. In Jonah, it takes more. You see, Jonah's rebellion demanded a response from God. The righteous creator and sustainer of all life and Jonah's life and the whole cosmos had given a command to Jonah and Jonah disobeyed it. He said, in essence, not your will, my will. So he got on the ship. And the judgment of God fell on Jonah and all those who were with him. Jonah's rebellion incurred the wrath of a holy God. And that wrathful sea, it was not calmed until payment was made. But payment was made. And against their own best judgment, the sailors picked Jonah up and they threw him in. And the sea was calmed. The wrath of God subsided and there was peace. Why am I telling you all this? Is it just interesting? No, some storms cannot be calmed with mere words. Even the words of Jesus. You see, we were given a command by the righteous creator and sustainer of all life. And we rebelled against him. He said, go this way, and we went that way. He said, love me with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. Enjoy me. We refused. We ran from the presence of the Lord just like Jonah. And we said, not your will, my will be done. And just like Jonah, our rebellion demands a response from a holy God. And there is a storm brewing. It's not a squall in the Sea of Galilee. It's the brewing swirling, unrelenting, raging, overwhelming sea of the wrath of God against sin. And it cannot be stilled with mere words, even the words of Jesus. 
Not even the words of the one who had the power to bring matter into existence and fling galaxies across the universe, not even that powerful word can calm this storm. Do you know how I know that? Because Jesus asked his father if it could be done some other way. Lord, could it just be words? Father, could words accomplish this work? The night that Jesus was betrayed, he knelt down in the Garden of Gethsemane and he said to his father, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, listen, not as I will, but as you will. The agony of Jesus is unmeasured at this moment. The stress of it caused him to sweat blood Not my will, but your will. And so he stood up. And then moments later, he he fell down again and prayed the same thing because the agony was so great. This beautiful life of Jesus Christ, the most beautiful human life that had been lived in thousands of years, utter peace and trust in his Father to take care of him, enjoyment of a relationship, man to God. This beautiful life, to cut it off was a a tragedy and a travesty. So Jesus prayed a second time, if there's any other way. And the Father's answer was no. Mere words can't calm this storm. And so he stood up and he walked willingly to the cross to silence the storm of wrath that was about to descend upon us. We were being swung by our arms and legs at the edge of the ship. Do you understand that? And Jesus walked up. And he stood on the ship's wall and he dove purposefully headlong into the raging sea of the wrath of God for his people. And when he hit the water, just like Jonah, the storm was calmed. Except this time, it was the holy, spotless Lamb of God dying for the sins of others, and it was beautiful. If you do not know Jesus Christ, I want you to hear this hard word that it's my responsibility to preach to you this morning. There is a storm brewing. It's been brewing for thousands of years. And in some theological ways of thinking, it's always been brewing. From before the foundation of the world. The Bible calls it the great and awesome and awful day of the Lord. It's the day when Jesus Christ returns to judge this world in utter power, utter authority, and perfect justice. He will destroy every evil work and every evildoer. There will be no stilling the seas on that day. His victory will be swift and final. But even in this very moment, and I mean this, even in this very moment, Jesus Christ calls out to you. See how he offers you forgiveness. See how he offers you a new life. See how he offers you the peace that you cannot find. 
Repent and believe in the one we've been looking at this morning. And then join us, the people of Mountain Fellowship, as we continue to peer into the darkness until this, the form of this Jesus becomes clear to our hearts. But then I have the joy of saying this. If you are in Christ, I want you to hear this. I need to hear it this morning. The sea of God's wrath has been calmed for you. Do you understand that? Listen, the sea of God's wrath is calmed for the believer in the act of Jesus Christ. And it will never churn again. It will never be churned again. And this morning, he invites us into this stillness. It's the stillness of this meal that we are going to enjoy together. You see, for the believer, the work is done. That's why Jesus said on the cross, finished. Finished. And now he invites you to his table. And there is peace. The reason that he can sit down for a meal is his work is done for you.